It's the 4th of December, 2016, and this is episode 317 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. Before I share today's show, I want to alert you to the freeross.org charitable fundraising effort underway right now. The goal is to help Ross Ulbricht's family pay for some of the legal bills associated with his ongoing appeal of his life in prison plus 40 years sentence. There's a live telethon-style broadcast going on over at the website freeross.org and a lot of donated items for sale aiming to raise $14,000. For those of you who don't remember, Ross is the convicted mastermind behind the Silk Road Black Market website. Whether guilty or not, the outrageous sentence he received, life in prison plus 40 years for his non-violent crimes, deserves a second look. Visit freeross.org to learn more. Now, on to today's show. After a controversial couple of episodes, I'd like to dial things back a bit for this time. I love Andreas talks, but my favorite part of them is often the questions that come up at the end from the audience, and the off-the-cuff answers he gives where you can hear Andreas really thinking about things in a new way. Today, we're skipping right to dessert. I'm pleased to present a collection of questions and answers from a handful of Andreas's talks, given from September of this year through early November. Enjoy the show. What advice do you have to give to companies here who are from non-financial institutions about how they should take tactical steps to think about experimenting with the blockchain in terms of storing value? I think understanding that it's not just currency, understanding that it is a platform for trust, understanding that it can be used as a historical record of truths that can register information, that it can be used to create all kinds of tokens that can be exchanged between your customers, your suppliers, your manufacturers, that it can also be used simply as a currency for any cross-border transactions, import-export activities, remittances-based flows, uh, paying associates and affiliates, all of the things that today are expensive, slow, and difficult, become cheap, fast, and easy when you use one of these digital currencies. But it's still early. For now, learning about it. Here's the one important thing you must understand. You will hear a lot about blockchain. And most of what you hear about blockchain is not the internet of money, it is the intranet of money. The intranet is where you run front page, an outlook, an antiquated software, and a closed little enclave of your corporate backwaters with stale content and boring apps. And in the end, it's full of viruses anyway, because you can't keep it secure. Blockchain that is not open, that is not public, that is not borderless, that is not open for innovation, is not what we're talking about here. And that's a really important distinction. It may be useful if you want to run a clearinghouse between three banks, maybe. But it's not the internet of money. Where does supply of Bitcoin come from? And how do you, how are you sure the market doesn't get oversupplied? Um, the supply of Bitcoin is determined algorithmically based on a geometrically declining supply function. Meaning that, in the beginning, every 10 minutes, 50 new Bitcoin are created. So every block, the heartbeat, 10 minutes, created 50 new Bitcoin. This Bitcoin is used as a reward in a game theory-based security model 
that ensures that every transaction is independently validated by completely anonymous actors, who have to stake electricity as a guarantee of the security work they have done. And if they succeed in doing the security work of validating transactions correctly, they earn as a reward, based on a probabilistic return, that reward. 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. That's how currency is introduced into the economy. Every four years, it gets cut in half. 50 to 25 in November of 2012. And this year, in July, this past July, we had our second halving event, which was celebrated with birthday parties all over the world. And Bitcoin's reward went from 25 to 12 and a half Bitcoin. As a system, it's designed to have a monetary policy that is purposely deflationary and simulates the issuance of precious metals. It gets harder and harder and harder to mine gold at greater and greater and greater cost. And Bitcoin is the same. The idea being that less and less is issued over time. If you follow that geometric curve, at some point you reach the end. In the year 2141, Bitcoin is no longer issued. 21 million coins is the asymptotic cap. It will never reach 21 million coins. That is part of the protocol. It is an unchangeable part of the protocol, and it is a rule enforced by every system that participates in the Bitcoin network. It is meant to be sound money, but it is not the only monetary policy that exists. There are several other currencies that implement different monetary policies. The idea is really for Bitcoin to serve as a very, very solid reserve currency for many other things. Um, obviously, it, it sounded a little bit like one side of the coin. Um, so we also read um, uh, all these, you know, big hacks, and I don't know, on Bitfinex, you know, they I, th I think they stole forty percent of the money. Um, I think also this this uh, autonomous organization have been hacked, and, and all these things. Can you just reflect a little bit on on the on the dark side or, or of of those aspects that might not uh, win our full trust into this evolution? Absolutely. The steering wheel was not invented until 30 years after the automobile was introduced. Why? Because the first automobiles had two leather straps that you pulled left or right to move the car, to steer the car. They used horse reins to steer cars. That's called skeomorphic design. It means keeping a shadow of the former past in your new system, failing to see the new dimension, and replicating the past. Here is a currency that is not centralized, where your money is your money. Your keys, your money. Not your keys, not your money. So, what is the first thing we do with this new system? We build centralized institutionals of custodial control that take other people's money and hold it for them. Well, guess what? The entire history of banking, the entire system of regulation and oversight, is based on the simple centuries-old understanding that when somebody else holds your money, chances are they're going to run away with it. And the entire system of regulation is designed to prevent that, and yet it still happens all the time. In hedge funds, in banks, in 
national currencies all the time. And so, of course, if you replicate custodial accounts, exchanges that take other people's Bitcoin and concentrate it, it happens again. Even worse, because there are no oversight and regulations in most of these spaces. The answer is really simple. Stop centralizing the decentralized currency. Stop trying to replicate the banking past in the future of money. And the important thing to realize is that security in Bitcoin is an emergent property that exists because of the decentralization of control and power. If I want to hack a million customers' Bitcoin and they're holding their keys, I have to hack a million customers. If they all give their keys to one person or one organization, then we've got a honeypot. A honeypot that attracts the attention of every hacker on the planet. And notice what's happened. Over seven years, and with a market capitalization of $12 billion, Bitcoin is the largest cryptographic deployment in the world, the largest public key infrastructure in the world, the largest security honeypot in the world. And it is not secure because it doesn't get attacked. It is secure because it generates immunity by being attacked all the time, 24 hours a day by the most sophisticated attackers this planet has. And if you, in that environment, set up a centralized custodial exchange using PHP and MySQL, <laughs> and you park a $150 million honeypot in there, you're inviting the sharks. Bitcoin banks get hacked. Bitcoin exchanges get hacked. Bitcoin has not been hacked and cannot be hacked because there is no point of control that you can apply pressure on. It's completely decentralized. What determines the buying power of the currency? How does it stabilize and what's required to stabilize it? So if I would buy some bitcoins, who can manipulate the value of that? Um, everyone. <laughs> the buying power of Bitcoin is determined in exactly the same way that the buying power of the euro, the British sterling, the Japanese yen, or the U.S. dollar is determined through market forces of supply and demand in international liquid markets that operate around the clock. One of the fundamental differences is that Bitcoin trading never ceases. It has been going continuously for seven years. The network never stops. Every ten minutes, Bitcoin's heart beats, and transactions are processed. The exchanges never close. There is no closing price for Bitcoin. It is a rolling average. And in that trading, a market capitalization of approximately $12 billion is now traded internationally. What is $12 billion for a global currency? It's a guppy, swimming in shark-infested waters. And every trader, every whale goes in there and just kicks that price around. So right now, the experience of living on Bitcoin, which I have been doing full time for more than three years, is a roller coaster. It's an absolute roller coaster. I've seen shifts of 20 or 30 percent in a day. And yet, if you look at the long-term trend, volume goes up, transactions go up, and volatility keeps dropping. And the beauty of it is, 
I can't sell that to an American. I can't sell that to a Brit. I don't need to sell it to an Argentinian. I don't need to sell it to a Brazilian. I don't need to sell it to a Venezuelan. I went to a conference, and an Argentinian told me, I'm not worried about volatility. Our currency has volatility like this. Bitcoin has volatility like this. I'd rather be going in that direction. And you don't need to tell them why. Their government threw people out of airplanes not more than 35 years ago for disagreeing. They already know why the separation of state and money is a good idea. And so volatility is relative. The next question asked was, why has mining centralized in China, and are you concerned about it? Okay, let me try uh, taking those two. Uh, the first one, uh, mining centralization. I, I think I, I've talked about this many times before, uh, and in my mind, I think mining centralization is a result of this very, very rapid acceleration in the hashing power, and going from CPU-based mining to ASIC mining, and, and straight up to catch up with Moore's law, the front end of Moore's law. And I think we're going to see the equation change a lot now that we've reached the front end of Moore's law. And now that the increases you can get are maybe 2x, not 10,000x in a year, that may change things. But one of the reasons this is happening in China, and I think we need to be aware of this is not some kind of communist conspiracy to take over Bitcoin by the government of China. It's important to realize that one of the things that's driving mining centralization in China is that it's better for mining to be in China. And the reason it's better for mining is because China has experienced this enormous growth in its electricity generation over the past 20 years. At some point, I remember the statistic vaguely in 2012, um, they were turning on a new coal-fired plant every 16 hours. Every 16 hours, they were turning on a new electricity factory, a big one. And uh, it was projected that that would not keep up with the demand for electricity, because it was growing even faster than that. That's really quite astonishing. So what happens when you build a lot of uh, generation capacity, but no distribution network? you end up with a situation that is very unlike what we have in the United States. In the United States, there are basically two, generation, two distribution networks. Um, there's a grid that connects the vast majority of the continental U.S. together, um, whereby electricity can be sent from Connecticut to Pennsylvania if there's excess capacity in one place and excess demand in another. Then there's a second distribution network that serves Texas. Because Texas, they're like, you have a distribution network? Oh, y'all, we're gonna make our own. <laughs> and so they have to. Um, and so the that was a terrible Texan accent. <laughs> half British, half Greek, recently Americanized. That was terrible. Anyway, it was a bit Indian, maybe. Anyway. Um, so what happens in the U.S. is if you have excess capacity from a factory and you have demand somewhere else, you just ship it across the distribution network. And in China, you don't. You just waste it 
you, you, you don't have anything to do with that electricity. If it's generated and it's not used on the spot by the local area where you can distribute it, um, it's wasted. So there's this very big difference between what's being generated and what's being used. And what can you do with the excess capacity? What do you do with the electricity that would otherwise get wasted? That would otherwise simply get wasted? Well, one thing you can do is you can turn off the power, right? You can turn off the plant. The problem is that some of these plants, you know, it takes six hours to turn it off and eight hours to turn it back on. So if you're going to have a lull in demand for four hours, there's not enough time to turn it off and on again, so you just leave it on. Wasted energy. Other plants, you can't turn them off at all. I was reading about this mining farm that has located itself in this tiny village in China um, where there's nothing. Um, except for a hydroelectric plant that was built as part of these development projects. And they have a hydroelectric plant that generates way too much electricity that they're not actually using, and that was getting wasted. So some enterprising person went there and said, Hey, Bitcoin mining. I'm like, what? <laughs> What's that? Free money from electricity. I'm like, oh, we'll take some of that. Um, so now they're doing 50 or 60 megawatts of Bitcoin mining out of these completely ramshackle warehousey buildings that will put up overnight. Um, and you can think that's wasteful or it's concentration of mining in China. What they're doing is they're solving a problem. They have electricity that's being produced. They can't turn it off. They they don't want to disinvest in electricity because eventually they're going to catch up with that level of capacity. And they found a creative way to turn that into money. Bitcoin is a battery. It's a battery that stores energy in the form of Bitcoin that they can then use to buy electricity in the future, or to buy oil, or to buy other forms of energy. It's an energy storage mechanism. Um, and I think that's brilliant. I'm not worried about centralization of mining in China because the incentives are so high to keep it going. And the only way you keep it going is by playing by the rules of consensus. Um, so the problem is that if a, a highfalutin official went in there and said we're going to ban Bitcoin, you know everybody in that village would be um, question question here. Um, all of our income comes from that building. Um, what what are you going to give us if you turn it off? What are they going to do? We're going to send a warrant to shut you down. Great. Good luck finding a police officer who's going to do that. They're all getting paid by the mining equipment, right? And so you see, the problem is that there's a big disparity between political power and electrical power. <laughs> um, so I'm not worried about centralization of mining in China because centralization of mining in China is representing the best of entrepreneurial capitalism in a very disruptive way in a country that desperately needs the best of entrepreneurial capitalism. We should be applauding it. Um, and honestly, we wouldn't be having this discussion if it was mining centralization in Sweden. Everybody would be going, yeah, awesome. <laughs> Another terrible accent. Uh, so I, I, I'm not worried about that. I think it's going to change, and I think it's not a problem while it doesn't change. Thanks for coming out and talking to us. Um, I've seen a few of your talks. You've been around the world talking about Bitcoin. What city most impressed you as far as startups or community go? And one more question: Do you think apps like Satoshi Dice 
that use the Bitcoin blockchain as like a database almost is a is a good or bad idea? Is it spamming the network or is it just uh, what do you think is absolutely basically? So I have to say that on the first question. Um, the Bitcoin communities that have influenced me the most are the Bitcoin communities in the developing world. That I visited, um, Brazil and Argentina are probably foremost in terms of the impact they have on my thinking. Um, because they showed me what it means to have a very clear understanding of why government money is a bad idea. It may have something to do with whether your government um, was throwing people out of airplanes in the last couple of decades, like recently. Uh, that encourages people to think more openly about alternative currencies. The, the, being in a society, I grew up in Greece, I saw currency shocks uh, three times when I was growing up. Um, I remember bank runs, long lines, destroyed fortunes. So that was an experience that I've always had with me, but seeing it play again and again recently in, in Argentina and Brazil to a certain extent, um, that made me understand why Bitcoin matters everywhere else. And I've talked about that a lot, this concept of the other six billion, why it matters much more um, for the places where, just like in the US, there's no difference between corporation, bank, and government. They're all one thing now. Um, but uh, in this particular case, they're also homicidal maniacs. And, and so, if, if that's the government corporation bank you're stuck with, um, you're much more motivated to seek a separation of state and money. Um, those communities influenced me a lot. Um, your second question is about Satoshi Dai's good or bad? Oh, yes. Um, I've talked about this as well before. The idea that there is no such thing as a spam transaction. There is no such thing as a good and bad transaction. That is a normative judgment that no one in Bitcoin is authorized to make. Bitcoin is a system without normative judgment. The question you ask about a transaction is simple. One, does it validate according to the current consensus rules? And the answer is clear. It's either true or false. And two, did it have sufficient fee to be prioritized and included into a block by the miners who are guided by their own self-interest and still validated according to the consensus rules? If it did, it was a valid transaction. It's valid to someone. It was valid enough to pay a fee, therefore it is valid. The whole point of Bitcoin is we don't make judgments on transactions other than the intrinsic validity of the transaction according to the consensus rules, and we let the market decide. If someone is willing to have their transaction carried, it is worth something to them. If what is worth to them is a fee that makes it worth to a miner, then it is worthy of being included in the blockchain. It is a very simple system of decision-making, because it removes all of the possibilities for problems. The problem is, the moment you introduce a normative judgment, you also introduce a judge. So, if the question is, what is a valid Bitcoin transaction according to a normative judgment, then the second question is, who gets to decide that? 
Um, and that's where things get difficult very, very quickly, as we've seen in the traditional banking industry. I wanted to see what are, are your thoughts on government being an intermediary, or do you think that the government should be uh, out of the equation in the next 10, 20, 25 years? Um, I, I, I don't think government is going to be out of the equation, both from a practical perspective, because I don't think that's realistic. Um, I'm also not a hardcore libertarian that says, you know, no government is appropriate. Right? There is a role for government. Government is just us making decisions altogether. Um, the, the question is, what is the government doing? Preventing, um, you know, outright violence between individuals, maybe. Um, building roads, not in this country if you've seen the roads. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you have to perhaps re-envision what government is. I, I think we have a model of government today, which is an 18th century model of government. And it's now the 21st century. It's time for a refresh. I don't know what it's going to turn out to be. I'm terrified about the possibilities. Um, but at the same time, I do know that the existing model is certainly becoming less and less effective at the things that government's supposed to do. Um, going back to your example with Airbnb and Uber, one of the things they do is provide standards, you know, standard um, experience, mm -hmm. a certain level of experience, and also sort of identity reputation. Mm -hmm. So how can you get, you know, decentralized payments with Bitcoin, but then you also have this other problem of, you know, identity and, and rating and consistency of the experience and standards for either the Uber or the, how do you, how do you combine those, put those two things together? Well, we're already seeing some very interesting experiments in that particular area. Um, we're seeing experiments with using escrow services and moderators, for example, to provide escrow services between seller and buyer. And that's a voluntary involvement of a third party that you can select. Uh, we can see that building to arbitration and mediation systems that are built through smart contracts. Um, and the other thing to realize is that one of the things that they solve through their reputation systems is um, civil attacks. They, they solve the, the issue of someone creating a bunch of fake accounts, and every time they get a bad rating, just switching to a different account, right? That's a problem. Well, there's a system that solves civil attacks. It's called proof of work, and we use it in Bitcoin. And now we're seeing the development of proof of stake systems to solve civil attacks, where you can stake money against the reputation without it being identified, an anonymous reputation, but with money staked behind it that does not allow you to easily just switch out of it, so that if you damage that reputation, it has a direct financial cost to you. We're seeing, this is the innovation that is being created out of the, well, how can we do this without using identity? How can we do this while still remaining anonymous? How can we do this without exploiting the data of individuals? And the answers are, well, if only we had programmable money. Oh, wait, we have programmable money. <laughs> Most of us in the room have programmable money. Some, Some people of still us. need it. Yeah, very few of us have programmable money. How do we get away from being the product and being the solution? Take control of your money um, and actually pay for the services you consume instead of um, getting free services for which you have to provide information. Um, a good guide as to whether a service is 
really offering you a service or if you're the product is whether you can use that synonymously. If you can use it synonymously, you're not the product. If you can't, you are the product. Um. And, and it's not easy to do at this time. You know, we all have entanglements with various platforms and services we use. Um, and even if you try really, really hard, your data is going to get harvested somewhere down the road by several players. But we can gradually start to change that. The question is, you know, what kind of web are we going to give to the next generation? Is it going to be a web like the one we started on, or is it going to be something completely different? Thanks, Andreas. Uh, great talk as usual. So, um, and that decentralized future that you see, what will be the incentive or driver for innovation, and what will be the monetization of business models for people who would design those services and products? Because I don't think that each artist or um, content developer will be able to set up their own full node and set up whatever number of services to get to receive bitcoins themselves. There will always be someone, an intermediary or a service or a payment service that will facilitate that. But so, they're not always intermediaries. I mean, look at what's happened with Open Bazaar. The, the important thing to realize is that what's being created on these platforms is new open ecosystems, right? So first of all. As soon as Open Bazaar started, immediately you had people advertising hosting services to run the service for you, right? Marketing services. A couple of search engines popped up within the first couple of months, and these search engines use the API uh, to basically index and crawl through the peer-to-peer -peer network all of the stores and give you a web searchable interface. No one at Open Bazaar built that. That was third-party services that built it separately. Now they're building additional services on top of that. All of these APIs opening up means that now you're not looking at a single company or a single platform. You're looking at an open system where people can offer layers and layers and layers of additional services, and you have a thriving marketplace for these services. So I think instead, what you see is an explosion of innovation. Right now, no one has access to the data really at Uber or Airbnb or any of these services. And the reason for that is because, once again, who's the product? You are. Um, in many cases, you'll see that I think over the next few years, we'll see that a lot of these services are going to make more money selling data about where you went, and when you went, and who you visited, and what you typed into the search engine, and whether you typed the name of a business and visited that business, and how long you were there. And the same thing with Airbnb. They're going to make more money off the data about you than the cost of the ride. Um, and once again, you are the product. So I don't see that as innovation. It's not innovative to turn people into a product. It's it's evil, but it's not innovative. I mean, it's been done. Um, just to uh, follow up on the Uber Airbnb example, yes. um, wouldn't it be in their interest, um, the shareholders of uh, Uber and Airbnb? to enable uh, Bitcoin payments, because then they don't have to pay 3% to their to Stripe or Braintree or whoever the credit card processor is. So, you know, I mean, so like that's the thing that puzzles me about both uh, um, Uber and Airbnb, and, and especially Airbnb, because they do uh, so many transactions internationally. Yeah. They have to pay so many fees, wiring fees, ex uh, foreign exchange fees, and. And, and so Bitcoin would you know, eliminate a lot of that. Um, honestly, like yeah, honestly, it's not a big enough market yet. 
there aren't enough people with uh, the ability to have Bitcoin or to earn Bitcoin or to convert into Bitcoin to make it worthwhile for any of these companies. I, I'm looking at this from a much longer perspective. It took 15 years to centralize the web, and it will take another 15 to 20 to re-decentralize it. We have the potential to do that in the meantime. Um, I don't expect them to start accepting Bitcoin anytime soon. The, the, for them, the, the risks and the, the, the difficulty they would face in adopting something like that probably outweigh any of the benefits. They might do it as a marketing gimmick, honestly. Um, but you know, it might start raising the question of what exactly we're paying 20% for. And I also heard sometimes people find the lower conversion rate by putting the Bitcoin logo next to the credit card logo. And they're like, ah, so they just hide it and only tell Bitcoin users that they take Bitcoin and don't put it on the main page. Well, I, I tried to persuade um, drivers to take tips in Bitcoin. And my argument is, you will ride around with this barcode on your dash for the next six months, and no one will know what it is. But then one day, dude's gonna get into your car, he's gonna look at that barcode, he's gonna go, you take Bitcoin? And he's gonna give you the biggest tip you've ever received. Because that's what the community is like, right? Like, imagine you get into an Uber and you see a barcode for Bitcoin. First of all, you're going to be like really excited. You're going to be discussing that for the rest of the ride. And when you leave, you're going to give them a bigger tip than you ever give them. Uh, I certainly would. So that's my that's my sales pitch. Is the one in six months unicorn Bitcoin user who will make uh, who will pay back for the one sheet of paper you use to print that. In the past, you spoke about um, infrastructure inversion, right? Um, where disruptive technologies are forced to, you know, survive on an infrastructure that it's not designed for, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Uber and uh, Airbnb, and I get it, right? The um, vampire squid suckers, um, but aren't they really paving a way for? This infrastructure inversion of peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, still they get yes, in the they way. Are, they are right in terms of payments. I get the payment part, but the software that brings people together—is it not just the beginning steps towards a more decentralized marketplace where people yes. can share these products freely? Absolutely, um, they are paving the way, and. Um, I'm sure my criticism is grossly unfair because the alternative, which is the traditional taxi system, completely sucks, and chain hotels completely suck. And I use Uber and Lyft and Cabify and Hail this and all of the taxi services, and I use Airbnb as my permanent home, uh, effectively. And so, yes, absolutely, they're paving the way. Um, would it be better if they paved the way without um, locking their own people into subprime auto loans and exploiting them? Yes. Uh, would it be better if they took a smaller cut um, and spent less money on the things they spend? Yes. Uh, we can do better. Just because we can do better doesn't mean that they're not good. It just means we can do better. And recognizing why decentralization tendencies exist is what I'm really up for. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. 
content was provided by Andreas and the Questioners. This episode was lightly edited and featured music by Jared Rubens. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one. Bye.